Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I was the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> a friendly word of advice to any German goalkeepers who happen to be listening to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. What do you have to say to the Torvarts out there? Um? <laughs> if Shane Long is bearing down on you with that right foot cock back, oh, yeah. it's already too late, I'm afraid. <laughs> First Manuel Neuer at Lansdowne Road. Fast forward quite a number of months, and uh, now you have this incredible goal scored last night uh, against poor Carius, poor Loris Carius at uh, at Anfield last night. If you're going to become known for trademark finish, you could do worse than the power drive across the German goalkeeper. That's yeah, a specific a specific Shane Long type finish. I f- I kind of feel if um, he was back playing, was it '82 when poor old uh, Battiston was hammered by yeah, Harold Schumacher? Schumacher yeah. Harold Schumacher comes storming out. Like that at Shane Long. Forget about it. Long would just blasted it by him and somehow got him out of the way. Yeah. He just has a thing for German goalkeepers. Yeah, well, he, do, he does. I mean, Pearl Carius had been doing reasonably well in a, in a yellow outfit that made him look like a golden marmoset uh, com- <laughs> commanding, the, commanding the penalty area. Uh, had, had made a couple of saves. Obviously, he didn't have too much to do because most of the game was taking place at the other end of the field mm-hmm. until... Southampton broke in the last minute and Shane Long drilled it past him. Um, yeah, it's great. It's a great, uh, great goal for Shane Long to celebrate the uh, beginning of his 31st year. Was his birthday? A couple of days ago. Yeah, a couple of days ago. Not yesterday, but a couple of days Yeah. Lots of big birthdays. Uh, Shane Long, Luis Suarez, Jose Mourinho today. Happy birthday, Jose. 54 years old. Hmm. So uh, time marches on. Slight issue. I had one slight issue with Sky's coverage of the goal. Uh, which was well no sooner had the ball nestled in the back of the net than the director had already chosen to cut away from the celebrating striker as in Shailen was just starting to drop to his knees it looked like yeah. and immediately within about a second of the goal being scored they picked out the shot of um, Cloud Puel oh, yeah. the manager on the sideline celebrating which you know is fine but Come on. Show give, the players. Show the players. By the time it returned to Shane Long, he was you couldn't see him. He was buried underneath the 
bunch of ecstatic teammates who'd all jumped he, on him. He just flopped on his back, actually. On, yeah. He didn't get down his knees Oh, was that what it was? He just oh, flopped on his, on his back, back, back. and uh, yeah, then everyone jumped on top of him. I suppose. It was a joyous, uh, joyous moment. Uh, yeah. I know there is a cult of manager in the Premier League, but come on. Claude it's Claude Puel. I can't even pronounce his name. Yeah. That's maybe more down to me. <laughs> Let's be fair. He'll be gone in a couple of months. Everyone knows it. Come on, people. Yeah. I don't know. I suppose if it's, a, if it's um, a striker from a miscellaneous country like Shane Long uh, <laughs> and one of the Premier League's less uh, maybe high-profile managers in Claude Puel, then the cult of the manager will decide. To be honest, I actually thought you were going to say it cut straight to Jurgen Klopp, which in ways might have been more understandable <laughs> given his uh, <laughs> tendency to not say... Uh, not hide his feelings after a goal goes in at either well, end. Well, uh, you know, it's not like he reacts usually to goals scored against the team. Nobody does, you know. I, mean, I always remember, I'm sure I've spoken about it before, but I always remember seeing some something about uh, Bayern. Uh, it was it was like some little documentary and it showed uh, Franz Beckenbauer and, and Mrs. Beckenbauer, Frau Beckenbauer, mm. um, sitting next to each other in the stand and they're, they're totally opposite reactions. First of all, a goal is scored against Bayern and Der Kaiser... Sits there, impassive, like a impassive face hewn from granite, unsmiling and just not reacting at all. While Frau Beckenbauer sort of clutches her pearls, and uh, you know it's oh no, I can't believe oh this Wailing is this is terrible. Of teeth and um, all the rest. And then Byron score, whereupon Frau Beckenbauer, you know, doesn't seem to have noticed actually, uh, while uh, Franz is up on his feet punching the air. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that says. I don't know how many uh, matches uh, Franz Beckenbauer's wife goes to. It didn't look like that many, actually. Uh, but usually the way is when when a goal is scored against you, not to, uh, you know, not to, not to not to react until a couple of minutes later when one of the players on your team makes a minor mistake, at which point you explode <laughs> in rage. You know, yeah. um, but that's the way it goes. But it's like the argument in a marriage, Ken. The big argument. It's always about something else, isn't it? Yeah. Like something small sets it up. What am I getting into? Mar- uh, uh, go on, no, go no, on, go on. Well, just, there is no judgment here. More. Come on. So just on the topic of uh, the cult of the manager. Okay, that's fine. No, bury okay. it. Just bury it. Push it further and further down until <laughs> it's specified date in the future when you'll come and kill us in a murderous rampage. Paul McElvine has emailed. Paul says to editor at secondcaptains.com. Dear SC, avid listener, but I have one thing that currently needles each time I hear it, and sadly your podcast seems not to be immune. I speak, of course, of the continuous reference to a coach's philosophy partly blaming the recently departed Louis van Gaal for popularising this term and Sky's continued policy to place each match as an epic battle between two super brains with footballers as mere pawns admittedly highly paid prawns prawns I've done it again <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I've done it again um, prawns in a murky deal prawns on their grassy game board in this case I better do that sentence again shouldn't I yeah. Partly blaming the recent part of Louis van Gaal and also <laughs> Sky's continued policy to place each match as an epic battle between two super brains with footballers as mere, admittedly highly paid, pawns on their grassy game on their grassy game board of strategy and cunning. It goes on a little bit from there. It kind of kind of gets a little bit confusing to read, so I won't do the next paragraph. But the final one says, ultimately, I think the whale will run dry for the sports broadcasters if they focus on the modern football conductors and not the sadly increasingly homogenous players put out to make material. The coach's footballing philosophy. Kind regards, Paul McElwain, Dublin. Yeah. Too much of a focus, both on this podcast and in all football media, on the coaches' philosophy. Coach! Well, there is too, there is the focus on too much focus on coaches, which has to do with the fact that they're the ones who speak to the media all the time. They're contractually obliged to talk to the media. So it's normal for the narratives to be constructed around them. 
since they are the ones who are forced to participate in them. They can't, literally cannot get away from from having to, you know, they, they, have to, they have to do press conferences after every game. They have to do press conferences during the week. They have to do interviews, TV interviews, radio interviews after, before and after every game. Enough to me get a knock. You don't need to go for a scan, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't understand the relevance of that. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's just a manager speaking, an assistant manager speaking. Um, they, they uh, so, and, and they're forced, they're, they're asked questions and therefore become participants in storylines that they may not believe, you know, have any merit or even relevance to reality. But nevertheless, there they are. So, you know, if you're, if you're asking about why there's so much focus on them, that's the reason why. Mm. Um, you know, and that and I guess... You know, players, I suppose it's more difficult to speak to players, or players tend to bypass the middleman these days. They talk on uh, Instagram, like each other's photographs and whatnot. Okay, Ken, let's. Uh, oh, I better tell people what's coming up. Tony Barrett on Jurgen Klopp and uh, the further difficulties for Liverpool at the moment after last night. And we're going to be heading to Gabon to check in with Jonathan Wilson of the Africa Cup of Nations. All that after you take that sport, Ken, and report the hell out of it. Well, yeah, we will talk to Tony Barrett about your couple. Let's talk to him a bit about Daniel Sturridge, who is the uh, is the man who finds himself in the firing line today after a performance last night in which he the misfiring line. Um, the misfiring. Well, that would be good for Daniel Sturridge because that would mean all of the criticism would miss the mark. <laughs> okay, yeah, but it's actually but he's the directly mark. in the firing. Right, okay, line. he's misfiring. He's a okay. misfiring striker in the firing. Yeah, it line didn't work. Murph. Okay, it didn't work. I, I mean, Jurgen Klopp's interview last night with Sky was like it seemed to go on for about forty minutes, and and it was like it was like some weird like uh, Harold Pinter type of situation, like two men who are trapped in an elevator together somehow. They've been, there's, there's been, been a mechanical uh, malfunction and there's a guy who's, who is in the elevator. One guy is a conversational guy and the other guy just is a kind of a, an introvert, <laughs> right? And over the course of two and a half hours, yeah. certain truths are revealed. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was basically how the interview, how the interview unfolded. Jurgen Klopp in the, in the unnatural for him role of the, uh, the guy who just doesn't really want to would rather stand there in silence if they have to stand there if they're, they're going to have to stand here. Um, but Sturridge is a guy who's been kind of picked out after you, you know Sturridge used to glide across the turf, and now it looks as though he kind of floats above the turf like a Daniel Sturridge-shaped balloon, mm-hmm. and he's got that. That's that's he changes direction at that sort of pace and has that kind of impact in the physical challenges with defenders. He's not really making a huge impact. Now, everybody could see this, but I thought it was interesting that, that Jurgen Klopp didn't take him off. When he, he you know, the, they, they showed Sturridge missing a chance and then immediately they showed Origi standing there warming up and it was like, well, we know what narrative is saying. Narrative says, Sturridge, you failed. You're fired. And Origi... You were misfiring and so you're fired. You've been <laughs> fired. And now, now here comes Origi. But actually Klopp didn't do that. He, he took off... Who... Was it Coutinho or Emery Chan? He took off someone else. It was Coutinho, yeah. Um, uh, it was Chan came on for Origi and then Coutinho was taken off for Wijnaldum. Yeah, rather. Origi came on for Chan. Either and way, yeah. uh, So he left Sturridge on and I thought that was an interesting... He was basically saying to Sturridge, I'm not blaming you for missing this chance. Try, try again, Daniel. But he should have taken him off. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, it's one of those cases where it's, it's, it's always a difficult uh, balance to strike. As a manager, you want to you want to try and impart confidence to your players, but sometimes you also got to cut your losses. You know what I mean? 
Uh, and, and Klopp, I guess, is a manager who will often err on the side of believing in the players or at least trying to persuade them trying to persuade them that he believes in them, even though he's got serious doubts, Ser <laughs> very serious doubts. Um, Sturridge today uh, finds himself the subject of statistical analyses in various uh, sources. Sky, um, the, the information about players' speed and, um, <clears throat> and uh, distance covered and all that kind of stuff is not uh, widely available unless you have access, as Sky do, to a proprietary uh, database of, of statistics. Um, what they say about Sturridge is, <laughs> well, I mean, something that we can all see about Sturridge is that he's gone from being a three goals every four games in the Premier League striker for the first half of his time at Liverpool to a one goal every uh, one goal every three games striker. Uh, I mean, it's thirteen goals in the last three seasons over thirty-seven league matches. Thirteen goals over three seasons. Harry Kane has thirteen goals this season. You know what I mean? So that's the level. So he's fallen a long way. Uh, off that, and they also are publishing information about his his top speed. Now, top speed is always a weird statistic when you see in in football. You know, um, the 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 top uh, the the fastest player always turns out to be someone really unexpected, like Damien Delaney. You know, you're like, how is this possible? But the, but oftentimes, if you look at like who are the fastest players in the league, you'll often see these weird anomalies. Like a, a, a defender you think is slow has at some point been clocked at a ridiculous speed. Um, but what they have done here is, is but is, it, sorry, is it top speed over five yards or is it top speed? You know, some the top speed that you're clocked at r r running it in the game. Uh, so during a game, okay, yeah, mm. yeah. So, well, but what what is maybe a bit more um, useful? Is is what they've done here in, in terms of what they've showed his average the average top speed that he was clocked at in each season hmm. over so if you take all his games that he played in a particular season and take the average top speed that he was clocked at in that game and you see that uh, over the last four seasons he's fallen from 32, uh, 32 and a half kilometers an hour to like twenty eight and a half now twenty eight and a half kilometers an hour is still fast by normal human standards. It's quick enough, but it's a lot slower than he used to be. Like, it's a big, mm. big, big drop-off. Um, and I can't help but feel as though the drop-off in the rate at which he scores goals may be related to the drop-off in the rate at which he moves. Nerd yeah, nonsense. Uh, Is it nerd nonsense? I'd say it's... Well, I could have summed it up by saying he's lost his pace. Him. Yeah. But, I mean... I, he's I, lost a yard. He's lost the yard. But then again, he always, Listen, he always had I that think, extra I yard think, up, up above. Yeah, I think this podcast should be a sanctuary for people who prefer to have some evidence to back up their wild claims. That's or all to I'm back saying. Or to back up the evidence of their, of their eyes. You what, know, you what do we want? Science-based facts. When do we want it? After peer review. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Jamie, Jake Hager did, um, did criticize him after the game. And he Where talked did that about one come from? Oh, I was assigned at the women's march. Don't mind me. Talked about how he didn't, how he didn't uh, run in behind. Of course, he couldn't really run in behind in that game though, because there was nothing to. Run. If you run in behind the Southampton defence in that game, you run, you're over the goal line immediately. <laughs> Maybe not at the speed Sturridge is currently moving at. He'd have enough time to to break. But you know, if you were running, if the old Daniel Sturridge had 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 catapulted himself through the Southampton line, He'd he be would be in the crowd. You yeah. know, half a second later. So it wasn't really that type of game. It was, but you know, he couldn't really. Um, Oftentimes he does make things happen, you know, because he's he has, for instance, I mean he, he's he's done it this season for for Liverpool in the game against Everton. You know, he scored a or rather he 
created a goal in the last minute for Mane by a dribble and an unexpected shot. And he does unexpected things. This is this is his uh, his great kind of gift as a as a player. One of his gifts. Uh, I, I can remember the in the Euros, England against Wales. It was Sturridge who well, it was actually Sturridge who scored, but he created the move as well. Uh, this was the last uh, the the late goal against Wales, um, when it had been such a kind of it was a, it was a poor game, yeah. um, technically bad game, uh, not a lot of ideas on show. And then Sturridge did something unpredictable. Instead of you know a little pause, didn't he? Didn't just pinball the ball straight back into the area the way that everybody everyone had been doing all the game. There was a little pause, and then a one-two, a dart into the area, and then the kind of finish that he's capable of. The problem is that uh, it's just you know it's these these moments are, are becoming rarer. And when you when you take away the kind of the more basic stuff that he used to do, the kind of um, the Essentially, the pace and, and power that used to characterise his game, which is now gone, um, you're yeah. not really left with a with a top Premier League player anymore, which is what he used to be. Um, where are we? His former boss, Brendan Rodgers. Well, here's the thing. Just because you know the lights are going out, or seem to be going out in the Premier League world of Daniel Sturridge, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, things you know that they're, they're, that the sun isn't going to shine tomorrow. Brendan Rodgers. Oh, he's winning so much. Well, it's it's actually got to the point where they are going to have to start start up a petition and say we can't take winning this much. Please stop winning so much, because Brendan Rodgers has equaled the club record unbeaten uh, the club record unbeaten run at Celtic of the Lisbon Lions. With the Did you know that every Johnson. player who played for that Lisbon Lions team Go born on. within? Oh, never mind. <laughs> Um, it's you know it's a 50, uh, 50 season record, and Brendan Rodgers has has equaled it. How many, Brendan game, how many games and his players? Wow! How many? It's only twenty six games, which actually amazes me that Celtic's unbeaten uh, record run is is twenty six matches. I mean, it's it's a league, it's a league measure, I guess, because they, they obviously lost. Or is it? I mean, they lost in the Champions League, didn't they? Mm-hmm. I haven't looked into it closely enough. I just saw Celtic actually tweeting about it. Congratulations, Brendan Rodgers and players who've equaled Lisbon Lions 26-game unbeaten record. I thought it might actually be more, given um, that Celtic have had a number of very dominant teams in their history. But, you know, it's uh, it's a very fine achievement from Brendan Rodgers. Um, they, uh, you know, things, things are going well for him. It just goes to show that there is life after Liverpool. And uh, and yeah, so what else is what else is going on? Southampton obviously going to the final, uh, where they will probably play Manchester United. I mean, Manchester United are playing Hull again, Hull tonight. Hull uh, are obviously in a bit of disarray. Although Marco Silva has come in and done quite well, they've lost uh, Ryan Mason's this terrible injury that he suffered against Chelsea with the fractured skull. Uh, they have lost. Um, it looks as though, well, Robert Snodgrass is actually apparently out of the game anyway with a, some kind of muscle strain, but it looks as though he may have played his last game for Hull because Burnley are trying to buy him, West Ham are trying to buy him, and to sell him at this point to teams like Burnley or West Ham, well, particularly Burnley, would be uh, kind of waving the white flag in a big way for Hull. You know, If you can't sort of say, look, we're going to hang on to Snodgrass until May and then sell him, Maybe we'll stay in the Premier League. I mean, it's like they, they they easily could, but to sell him at this point would just be, to, especially to to another team that might be fighting relegation, would be not a good sign. That Celtic record is obviously domestic, by the way, as well. 
Yeah. I mean, they did did ship a couple of beatings, one beating, one heavy beating, 7-0 in the championship. 7-0, although it just occurred to me as I, as I was saying it, was that maybe more than 26 games ago? I'm sure, in fact, that game probably was. That was the first game they played in the Champions League. But they lost, uh, I'm sure they must have lost no, they have, yeah. other matches. It's, yeah. it's domestic, it's domestic. Okay, um, so tonight, anyway, Manchester United against uh, Hull. Jose Mourinho had a few things to say. Um, he's got his own little... I mean, he... He, I think he does like always to have somebody who's on, on the sort of hot seat. By which I mean a seat, which is, say, imagine all the players are sitting in a circle. Mm-hmm. And one of the seats is just is heated up so hot that it's slightly burning to the skin. But you've got to sit there. You know? It's a lot of it's a painful situation. But you've got to... Jose Mourinho likes to do that to keep this squad on their toes. And at the moment, the, the owner of the buttocks, which are being pressed to the sort of hot plate... <laughs> uh, is Anthony Martial. This is different from squeaky bum time. Yeah. This is, a scorched, thing, this is the scorched bum approach. Scorched buttocks. Yeah. Uh, it was Henrik Mkhitaryan for a while. Scorched arse approach. Does Luke, Luke Shaw obviously has has, uh, has spent a few months uh, <laughs> sitting on one of those types of seats. Luke's seat is uh, little more than a charred remain. <laughs> it's like a, jo- it's a George complete. Foreman grill that hasn't been cleaned <laughs> in like three years. Oh Just yeah, I've seen, one, I've, I've seen one of those. Yeah, yeah, we all know what that's like. The little runoff uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's just oh, completely no. full of lard. But uh, you're supposed to be able to just wipe this. That's what the ad says. <laughs> um, but but it's something Marshall at the moment um, didn't make the bench for the last match. Marina says, I don't think he lost his focus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think he didn't catch with both hands a big opportunity he had. Um... He says that when we spoke about Memphis, Memphis has obviously gone to Lyon. We spoke about it being the only position where we have an overbooking of players. We still have five players for this position. I kind of give one player chances to play and kill the others. To kill the others, I think I already did that with Memphis by considering him the last option and not by giving him any, not, and by not giving him any option. But the other guys, I think you'd be asking me why Mata is not playing or why Marcus Rashford doesn't have a chance or why Jesse Lingard, a national team player, is not playing. Basically, Martial... His performance against Liverpool wasn't good enough mm. from Jose's point of view. He thinks he needs to do a lot better than that if he's going to get back into the squad. We have Rashford, Lingard, Mata, Mkhitaryan and Martial, and I cannot give the same player chance after chance after chance. I'm not consider the effort of the others. Anthony played against Liverpool, a big match for us, and a big match for him too. Then the next game, I went to Mata and Mkhitaryan. This is the situation. So... Uh, Simple situation for Anthony Marshall to understand there. Bit of the stick for Anthony Marshall. I would say he's more of a carrot man. You think I, so? I think Marshall would like the... Doesn't even want an arm around the shoulder, actually. So he's too confident for the arm around the shoulder. Mm. I would imagine he'd just be like, leave me alone, I'm brilliant. Let me do my thing. I, Did you not see my first six months for Manchester United? It's amazing. I think he has got a cold temperament. You know, he's like... And you can, you can kind of almost see that in the way he plays. Oh, he's, yeah. You know, he's... He's composed. He doesn't lose the head. That's what I mean. He seems very self-assured for quite a young man. And Mourinho's confrontational leadership, as he calls it, that's his, that's his phrase, confrontational leadership. You, you, you get someone, you point the finger at them, you accuse them of a bunch of stuff, and then sit back and wait for the fireworks. You know, uh, Prove me wrong then, basically, is what it can be condensed to. I'm not sure if, if it's the way to deal with Martial. I mean, Jose Mourinho knows Anthony Martial better than I do. You know, he's... Although, the question is, to what extent do, does he 
To what extent is he, does he manage players as individuals and to what extent does he subject them to a kind of one-size-fits-all approach, my way or the highway, you know what I mean? This is the way I deal with players. You see, I think with a player like Martial, and in fact any player in that position, which, by the way, is a position that Jose Mourinho always has problems with players, always go back to, throughout the career, every single team, every single club, there's always been a guy in that position Joe Cole, Ryan Robbins, Damien Duff, you know, Mata at Chelsea. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a whole ton of them. There's a whole ton of these players. Hazard most recently at, at Chelsea. Uh, Memphis is obviously gone. Marshall. I mean, when you're a player in that position, it's a, it's, a peripheral, it's a peripheral role. It's not like you're a central midfielder who's always involved in the game. Um, it's, you know, it's... It's more. There's a lot of off the ball. There's there's work that nobody else notices, you know. And then there's a limited number of chances, and you've got to hope, hopefully, take them. But you can't take them all the time, you know. Nobody nobody can. There's a. You, you, if you want to get the best out of a player like that, you have to have patience. You have to accept that sometimes they're going to let you down. You know what I mean? You can't just play them, and if they don't score, drop them. That's not how it works mm. with these guys. That's how Mourinho seems to think it should be. You know that's how he, that's how he seems to think it should be, uh, Kevin Kevin De Bruyne. You know how good is how good a player is he? But even he wasn't good enough. He wasn't consistent enough in in Reno's world. Now nobody is that consistent. If you demand that those kinds of standards of these players, I mean, creative, particularly wide attackers, then you're just going to be disappointed with them all the time. And if you look back at a whole history of dysfunctional relationships. I wonder what's going to happen here. I personally think that Marshall is has got amazing potential. You know, could be one of the best players in the world. The money that they paid for him would, would seem to suggest Manchester United, or at least a few people at the club, thought the same thing. Um, but it doesn't seem as though... Well, if Mourinho does think that, he's he's concealing it within a little bit of confrontational leadership. Could be wor- worse in terms of confrontational leadership, Ken, mm-hmm. for Anthony Marshall. He could be in the charge of the mad dog up at uh, Highbury there. At Highbury? Ooh, show my age. <laughs> At the Emirates, Highbury. It'll always be Highbury to me. Oh, the Woolwich, <laughs> um, the Woolwich uh, manager, Austin Wenger, uh, has uh, apologised to uh, to the FA. Although he says he will request a personal hearing, so he apologised in the open. But he wants a personal hearing so he can, in private, he can put his little case. Hmm. I'd say he's pretty charming in those. I'd say he might charm the pants off of those. FA, whoever hears those hearings. I'd say Wenger comes in, he's impressive. He knows how to deal with a room of middle-aged to old men. Yeah. I'd say he could probably do a good job of defending himself. He probably could. And it seems as though what he's going to say is, of course I was wrong. Of course. At the same time, I thought that where I was standing in the tunnel was actually a fine place to be. And as a pa- I'm a passionate football man. You know, emotions run high. That's the game we love. Football is feeling. And, you know, things happened which I regret and apologise for. However, I did think that I was a long way back. So, absolutely, I throw myself upon your, <laughs> yeah. throw myself upon your mercy. His old buddy, Pards, had a uh, two-match ban and a 20-grand fine when he did something quite similar. Um, although he was actually kind of on the sideline, you know. So, uh, so maybe Arsene Wenger. But I'm sure the, the penalty will be at least that, or the FA will. Ju- it, it's not worth it to the, for the FA to give Arsene Wenger anything less than that. Be just because of the amount that, that they're going to hear, be hearing about it from certain other managers who feel hard done by. Certain other managers are going to talk a lot about this if, if there isn't a... So it's just not worth it. 
it's going to have to be uh, Wenger's going to have to accept his uh, punishment there. He did say that he's told Granit Xhaka not to tackle. Uh, I think he's not naturally a great tackler. Observes Arsene Wenger. So I'm going to hide this terrible tackler right there in that holding role in midfield. <laughs> in <his laughs> Just de- play to his strengths, you know. In his decision making, I think he's quite intelligent on the pitch, but it's more the way he tackles that isn't really convincing. He doesn't master well the technique. I would encourage him not to tackle. Stay on his feet. Tackling is a technique you learn at a young age. You can improve it, but when you're face to face with someone, it's better you stay up. So there you go. Okay, it's only. I mean, we all have the evidence of that in front of our own eyes, but. Talk about admitting a glaring weakness in his game for opponents to exploit. His opponents now know his manager doesn't want him to tackle. Run at Granit Xhaka. Yeah. Just run at him. See what he does. If he doesn't get sent off, he will get booked. You know, it's... it's but that's, that's... I suppose Arsenal have just got to try and play the game in a way that minimises the number of times people are running at uh, Granit Xhaka. It's just the way it goes. We haven't had a Burrita Hangeland news hit on the show, Ken, I would say ever. So... First time We've ever. mentioned Breda Hangeland on the show. Come on. Uh, someone sent me along these quotes from Breda Hangeland. It's quite funny talking to some uh, talking to Nor- a podcast in Norway called Haya Football. He's long retired, I presume, Breda, is he? What Not that long. Know. He's, he's, 30, he's 35. Was he playing for Palace last season? Was it the season before? Born in the United States. Born in Houston, Texas, according to Wikipedia. He's like the Ronan O'Gara of Norwegian football. <laughs> um, but uh, but Hangeland's for this uh, podcast, gives them... Uh, 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 they get him to pick a team of former teammates, but the, whether it's Hangeland's idea or theirs, I'm not sure. But the it isn't just best players you played with; it's laziest players you played with, like top ten, eleven laziest players. All time, Breda Hangeland's all time lazy eleven three four three. Wayne Hennessy, he would just lie down in the gym in one of those thick blue mats when we were working out and relax while the rest of us worked out. Incredibly <laughs> uninterested in the gym. Chris Baird, completely uninterested in the gym and cardio. Whenever we were doing cardio, he'd ask the coach, when can we go play football? Zenek Grigera, Eric Panzerhagen, we don't really know these guys, or I don't anyway. Wilfred Zaha, amazing physique, very athletic, huge potential. On some Mondays, he'd come over to me and say, I'm starting my program now. He clearly decided to start during the weekend. We'd go to the gym together, he'd do five push-ups, sigh, and leave. It felt like he had a New Year's resolution every Monday. Would be incredible if he was serious. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Bullard, great player. So incredibly weak. Never interested in going to the gym at all. Clear-cut player for this team. Musa Dembele. You know what he's going to do, but you can't stop it. Maybe the best player I've played with. I'll be surprised if he doesn't end up at a club like Real Madrid. Struggles a bit with his physique, but what he has is natural. Never lifted any weights. Incredible balance. Only player apart from Panzerhagen on this team that had the right not to work out. Brian Ruiz, Costa Rican, who played great everywhere but for Fulham. <laughs> was never near the gym don't think he knew where it was always wore long sleeves wouldn't be surprised if he showed up with scarf and beanie during games absolutely, absolutely hated being even marginally uncomfortable if it was cold or wait, we were away to Stoke he would never come along ah Stoke uh, Bobby Zamora a strong man but hated the gym intensely whenever it was time for deadlifts he'd start feeling his hamstring etc this happened every single time we went to the gym fantastic guy though I forgive him for being a great player and guy. Uh, so apparently one of the presenters then said that Zamora uh, had a, at least had a great leap and Hangman said, yeah, didn't like heading the ball though. Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of insulting going on. Dimitar Berbatov. I've never seen a man get so many massages in my life. I'm certain he spent more hours getting massaged than he trained. Whenever we were in the gym working out, Berbatov was getting massages. I knew the guy who gave him massages. Usually at the end of the season, the players give the physios a gift, a trip, a car, Money, whatever. 
He'd massaged Berbatov for hundreds of hours this season, and he got nothing. Absolutely nothing. Oh. Oh. <laughs> the, the host apparently said, well, Berbatov at least you know, had a six-pack. He seems to be in good shape. And he said, well, he, he basically he ate very healthily, so he starved himself mm. uh, to that six-pack. Uh, and Adebayor, uh, the final player on the team. I only played with him for six months, but a quick story. I played for Fulham, and he was playing for Spurs. Uh, we were attacking, and I was marking Adebayor in midfield. Suddenly he says, oh, I'm hungry. I replied, what? I can't wait for the game to finish. I'm so hungry. Do you know a good restaurant in London, Hangeland? <laughs> he called him Hangeland. Uh, so Hangeland says, yeah. he said, do you know a good restaurant in London, Hangeland? <laughs> there, there are one or two, yes. Says uh, former, uh, former Arsenal now, <laughs> oh, Tottenham yeah. player. Right. Right, where, uh, later, when he came to Palace, I started to realize where this came from. When we had strength workouts... He would sit in the gym with just a cup of coffee and a muffin. He was being paid by City, Tottenham and Palace at the same time. And he was sitting in the gym drinking coffee. <laughs> Incredible natural talent. Very lazy. To win the Premier League, it's a war on nutrition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Adebayor is, uh, seems to be giving a lot of interviews. He's at the uh, Cup of Nations. Um, Seems to be giving a lot of interviews about his genes. Golden genes, he says. I have got incredible genes. The best. The uh, very best genes. If anyone uh, in the Premier League wants to buy me, thanks to my awesome genetic endowment, I still think I could do a bloody good job. That's it for today's installment of Cairns Report on Sport. And Randolph sends it long. That's his kind of size. Shane Long. And Shane Long's in behind the defence. Shane Long against Moyer. Our Tony Barrett's ready to chat to us, Tony, about last night. And uh, I suppose we might start post-match. It seemed like Jurgen Klopp was talking about the wind being difficult to handle, the long-hand ball, which possibly could have been a penalty, the uh, fact that, you know, there just seems to be quite a few um, excuses, which I don't think Klopp usually offers up. Is that the right reading of it? Yeah, the distraction strategy is what we see from most Premier League managers now when, when a big result goes against them, they, they, they look for it. The other reasons, rather than the ones that probably they they're responsible for, for if not to, to take all the blame away, certainly to make sure it's spread around a, a little bit more than than, than should be. Uh, wind's been a consistent theme for Klopp uh, ever since he's been. He's, he's he's mentioned the wind as if it's it's something novel, as if it's something he's he's never come up against before. And I know the northwest of England isn't the most tropical of places, but uh, usually the weather's fairly decent for football and. Last night was a bit different. It was cold and it was blustery and it wasn't good. And I could see his point with the wind being more favourable to Southampton because they had a lead to protect. It was Liverpool's job to play the football and try and get a goal and Southampton was sitting in deep and counter-attacking. So I can see why Liverpool would have preferred it not to be windy. It certainly would have helped them. But I think it, as with the refereeing decisions, these things happen in football. You deal with them, you get on with them. Uh, and the reason that Liverpool allows the competition isn't the wind, isn't the referee is that they fail to score either leg. And when you do that, you can't have any complaints about anything but yourself. Yeah, and I, I guess, the, I mean, there the was a really protracted post-match TV interview with Klopp. I don't know why it went on for so long, but it's a, you could kind of see him getting more and more annoyed. 
it seems as though they, they probably should have wrapped it up in an early point, but I wonder, I mean, he, the, the reason that they didn't score was really down to Daniel Sturridge missing from underneath the crossbar. You know, it was a, the, the kind of chance that you'd expect him to bury in his sleep, and he missed. I mean, is he reluctant to sort of point to that moment because it would be victimising an individual player? Yeah, but there's that, and I think I think what you've seen in his programme like, notes last night, he, he basically said that he had no doubts whatsoever about the quality of the squad that he has because he sees it every day in training. And obviously at the time when everyone else is questioning the quality of the squad, that's quite a statement. Uh, I think Klopp's one of those managers who feels he has to back the players that he has. Uh, he was asked about transfers recently and he, and he said, yeah, we would like to bring players in, but it doesn't look like it's going to be possible in this window, but it's no big problem. Uh, now, those two statements don't really fit together. If you're looking to buy players, it suggests you think there is a problem that you need to fix or certainly something that you need to improve. But equally, Klopp knows he has to use the players he has from now until the end of the season. And if he, if he says, yeah, this squad isn't good enough, uh, or this player, is let, this individual player is, is letting us down, it then becomes very difficult for him to get the best out of him. And to be fair to him, I think that was a problem at the end of Brendan Rodgers' reign. He, he was willing to, to say that he didn't have the right players, that the squad wasn't good enough, that players were, were letting him down, whether it was Balotelli, Sacco, whoever it was, he would he would, he would, would single them out. And that was one of the reasons why his reign unravelled as, as quickly and dramatically as it did. Uh, I think Klopp knows that probably that's not the way to go about things. But he, he'll, he'll be as aware of anyone. His, his use of storage uh, since he's been managed tells you what he thinks of storage and, and, and what my conclusion from that is he doesn't think he's a player for him. I think last night was just the latest bit of evidence in, in support of that. I mean, you can't help but notice the decline in Sturridge. I mean, uh, you know, it's all... I mean, Jamie Carragher, I know, was, was speaking about it last night. Um, the fact that he doesn't sort of run in behind anymore. Um, he, you know, he always seems to be kind of coming back towards the ball and, and trying to lay it off last night. But it's, he just has... What, what, what do you think is happening there? Is it a question of injuries have, have ruined... Uh, the player that he once was, or or or, or is it a, is it more of a psychological thing? Is it a case of I mean I, the fact that Klopp, Klopp no, didn't I, take I him off? The injuries. Yeah, I, I think it's the injuries. It's uh, I, I know the psychological thing, and, and and Jamie Carragher mentioned that on Sky, and I'm not saying that's without foundation. I do think if you've had the injuries that the uh, Daniel Sturridge has had, it, it's going to be playing on your mind. Well, what I what I mean more is not is not so much because because I th- I think that's basically related to the to the injuries or, or you know worrying about his his body you know what it's capable of these days. I mean more the kind of like the yips that a striker often gets when they feel a bit threatened. I mean it's obvious Sturridge knows that you know if if all the players are available he's not going to play. I mean that's 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 the lesson of the season. Um, uh, the the idea that he doesn't really feel like he's got the confidence of the people around him in the way that he once did. I mean, you know, regardless of how injured Daniel Surridge is, he he's got to score that chance from under the crossbar. It's like no, I I, I agree. I, th- I think it's separate things. I think what you have is is the physical element that is undoubtedly there, and people have doubted Daniel Surridge for for a long time about his his resilience, about his willingness to play when he he felt he wasn't quite right. But what history has done is, is shown us that Daniel Sturridge knows his body better than anyone he fears his body will break down because it is going to break down, he's not kidding anyone in that, he will have a training session and he will say I don't feel right and he doesn't feel right for a reason, his body's about to break down and that has happened time and time again and he's had, I think it, at one stage it was 11 injuries to the same thigh muscle 
And when you've had that at the age of 26, and he's had more since then, physically that has a profound impact. And we can see that. We can see when balls, never mind chances, when balls laid into channels from to run onto, there was a, there was a pass played in front of him towards the cop in the second half last night. And it was a nice slide real ball that he should have reached comfortably, but it reached the cop wall before he could get to and he ends up stumbling into the, into the stand almost. So there's that element, there's the physical element. And that then impacts on the other side, the mental side, uh, which which I think is more through the manager than through his own in- insecurities. I think the manager doesn't trust the player physically, again, with good reason. And because he doesn't trust the player physically and he knows he can't press, he knows he can't play high-energy football, he knows he plays to feet rather than running behind, he, he picks them less often. So that trust then breaks down. And so storage plays less. He doesn't have any rhythm. He doesn't have any confidence. So when he does get a start and chances come, he's less likely to take them. So it's all those different issues that impact on one another. And you're now at that stage where I think most people looking at Danny sort of think, your time at Liverpool is coming to an end. And that isn't that people are trying to, to dig him out or force him out. There's a degree of tragedy to this. This was a player who looked one of the most exciting attacking talents in Europe as recently ago as 2014, who now looks a player who you're not sure whether he should be on Liverpool's bench just simply because physically he doesn't appear up to it. So it, it has been a dramatic decline and it is a very, very sad story for me. And I, I do have sympathy with storage. I didn't uh, not too long ago. I, I, I think like a lot of people, I was lacking in sympathy for storage. But the longer this goes on and the more you see him in his physical condition, the more you think he, he, he has had a raw deal. He, he doesn't deserve what's happened to him. But... Liverpool are going to have to find a way of dealing with that. Well, the match winner last night for Southampton is almost like the opposite of <laughs> Sturridge in every way there. He certainly has no problem getting in behind defences. That's kind of what he likes to do, Shane Long. Uh, if, if he could do that all day long, he probably would. And f- physically very robust. Uh, obviously not uh, anywhere near the kind of uh, capable of the kind of some of the sort of goals that Daniel Sturridge can score. But last night was a great finish. He, he was linked with Liverpool, obviously, I think it was this time last year, was it the January transfer window? There was there was briefly talk of maybe him going to Liverpool. Nothing came of that. Would he be the kind of striker that actually would, would be quite suited to Klopp style? I think he certainly would. I mean, I mean, Danny Ings was, is, is, is of a similar type. He's the type who would run all day and running behind and I mean, you've got to be honest, they're not of a similar quality to Daniel Sturridge. There is no way in ability levels, in, in ability to take chances, they can do what Daniel Sturridge does. They, technically, they are not on his level. But in terms of playing the way Klopp plays, and this gives an insight into the management in many ways, that type of player is more suited to what Klopp wants. Uh, I, 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 there was never any interest in Liverpool and Shane Long. I know, I know the link was there. But the, the reason why that link did make sense was because you could see a player of, of long type playing in a, in a Klopp side. You could see him uh, turning defences around. You could see him running behind. You could see him pressing relentlessly. You could see him do all that running, all that physical high-energy stuff that Klopp wants from the strikers. And that is, the, that is the problem at Liverpool in general at the minute. They don't have enough Klopp-type players. And it may well be that they, they enter the market again in the summer because it doesn't look like they will enter the market in the summer. And when they do that, they're going to have to buy more players of this type because I think of the outfield players who started last night, uh, probably Joel Matip was the only Klopp signing. Yeah. So that tells you that you still not don't have a Jürgen Klopp team. And that, and that is that is why uh, Liverpool is still in that kind of... I don't know, it's a, it's a transitional period in lots of ways. It didn't seem like that, but it was. And they, they were playing well and players were playing to the pinnacle of their ability. 
But there was no wiggle room. Once they lost a little bit of energy, they lost a little bit of confidence, a little bit of form, the plummet was always going to be fast because that quality, that, that way of playing the way Klopp wants, once you take certain key individuals out, it, it isn't going to work as well. And, and, and that's what we're seeing on on a, on a on a game by game basis now. So, what do you think has actually happened? Because okay, obviously something is not working the way that it was. The, you know, this month it's seven games, one win, three draws, three defeats, uh, a big loss of momentum. I don't know if if you if this uh, if the believers are becoming doubters again, uh, generally around the stadium. But say one one thing that you've alluded to in what you've just said is the idea that they have run out of energy that that the playing style is too demanding. I can see Raymond Verheyen, who loves this team, uh, is again today saying, I said, I told everyone, I predicted that this would happen, and now it's happening. He runs the legs off his players. Too much running in preseason, too much running, too much running all the time, and it's no wonder that you've got a tired team that's that's falling apart. Do you go along with that? Because I have to say, they didn't look short on energy to me last night. I mean, there were were players like Lalana and Milner, you know, create, like chasing lost causes, throwing themselves into challenges. It seemed like there was energy there. What was missing was something else. I think, I think it's more mental tiredness than, than physical. I think if you look at the, the running stats and the, the possession stats of, of the game last night, Liverpool would have been dominant on both fronts. Uh, Southampton sat in and let Liverpool have the ball. And, and I, think, I think at one stage, Liverpool had 85% possession. So, I don't, physically, I'm not seeing it as much in in the kind of running sense. Uh, I am seeing in injuries. I'm seeing it in players who are having to play more games than they should, or or, or maybe having to play when they're not their best. I'd, I'd say Philip Coutinho's in that in that category. I'd say Jordan Henderson is in that category. Joe Matip's another. Emre Chan players who have little knocks. Who, if Liverpool had a better, deeper squad, they would be able to sit games out or at least be on the bench or not have to start each one of them. But the way things are at the moment, the way Liverpool's squad is, if those players don't play, there isn't a hell of a lot else. Yeah. And and that is that is where I think physically it's taken a toll. Mentally, I think you you see it's that they've been set a test now. Every team knows, especially when they come to Anfield, that if they sit deep in numbers, two banks of four, and look to counter, that they've got a chance of getting a goal and they can keep Liverpool out. Well, this is the, this is that, this is the thing, though, Tony, isn't it? I think I think this is the actual problem that they're having, it's not so much um, that they're tired and can't do what they were doing, it's that the opponents have adapted to them. So if there is a criticism of Klopp here, it's not so much that you know his whole approach to the game uh, is, is it demands too much from the players and can't be sustained over the season, it's that he hasn't managed to work out a way of... He, he, the, the opponents have now adapted to the way Liverpool play, and he, he hasn't managed to readapt. That, that you know, there's a, there's a case that tactically he's, you know, he, he's not uh, he hasn't got too many more strings to his bow. Now, I can, now I, can, I, I think I'm closer to that argument than than the, the Hayen one, and I, I do think it is. And what I mean by mental fatigue is is every single game the Liverpool players, whether they play Plymouth, whether they play Swansea, whether whether they play Southampton, are going into every game knowing they will have the ball and they're going to have the ball over and over again, going through the same routines, the training ground, attack against defence drills that they do, uh, but they're doing it for real. And every time that that test uh, doesn't get passed, I think that creates a mental fatigue that, that reduces their willingness to take risks where they would have done in the autumn. It reduces their 
the speed of the pass. And I think you see it around the box, the little given goals that were working so well three months ago are now being cut out. And that's not just about teams sitting deep and defending well or, or figuring Liverpool out. That's about Liverpool suddenly lacking a little bit of belief because of what they're facing. And that is it. that mental test is one that they are failing at the minute. And it's good players who are failing. And that's where it's really intriguing is that whatever Klopp's methods are, you would expect in the round the penalty area, Roberto Firmino, Daniel Sturridge, even even, in, even when he's not playing well, uh, Adam Lallana, uh, Philip Coutinho. You, you go through the names and you think you can make something happen here even if things aren't working well and that's not happening at all. I mean, that shows just where they are in terms of morale. And the other element is Liverpool under Klopp look very much a momentum team. Momentum in games and momentum over numbers of games. So, there will be spells. The Arsenal game at the start of the season will be case in point. All for the first half, unbelievably good for 20 minutes, then poor for 25 minutes. And that sort of that has been the theme since Klopp's been at Liverpool. You've had, until the autumn of this season, you didn't get many 90-minute performances. You then started getting them, and then you got them together, and then you got on a roll. But then as soon as that roll stopped, there was a... There was, negative momentum and they don't know how to reverse that so but it's a, there's all kinds of things going on and, and the worrying thing from their point of view is from going from talking about the title the form they're in they have to worry about getting top four mm. if they don't get top four this year that is a massive opportunity to tra- transform themselves gone it will be 60 million pound in tv money lost it will be the chance to get better players lost it will be an improvement in the club's caliber gone all these kind of things, and you sort of back to square one way Liverpool keep going, where they go into a season with Premier League, Europa League, Thursday, Sunday football, with too many games, not enough players. And it's like, it's like a vicious circle. They had the chance to break that cycle this year, but now increasingly there must be a fear that they won't be able to. OK, <clears throat> we'll watch uh, with interest. This is Tony Barrett, joe.co.uk. Thanks very much. Cheers, gents. Uh, it doesn't sound like a great picture painted by... Tony there of how Liverpool are at the moment and I think he seems to agree with you what he does that it's not really a physical issue that the players seem to be on it in that sense but it's just they seem to be pretty fragile uh, psychologically at the moment and don't seem to be quite up to those that side of the Jurgen Klopp demands Yeah they just they just don't have the kind of personality I guess to, to really force the issue in these games you know playing against other defensive teams um, you know the teams, the teams are saying okay we don't think you can beat us if we do this Let's let's give it a go and it's been really effective over the last few weeks. So that's something they're going to have to get over. But you can kind of sense just the way that that like uh, fans are a little bit impatient. I mean, will we play the will we play impatient Liverpool fan? Let's hear him. Klopp has to go. He's not a trophy-winning manager. He's lost three finals with Dortmund, two with Liverpool. He keeps playing minor players in FA Cup matches. We've lost in this semi-final. The club's going backwards. They've not brought in somebody to replace Mane at the African Cup of Nations. He has not sorted out his defence. He hasn't replaced Mignolet or Carriers in goal. They're not good enough. They have not won a Premier League match in January. They're dropping from second to fourth. They'll end up in the Europa League at best because Everton could overtake them the way Liverpool are going. Liverpool is a club based on winning trophies. Jurgen Klopp is not a trophy-winning manager and they need to replace him with Diego Simeone by next season. I thought he was going to say by next Saturday for a moment there. He sounds like an impatient man, this Liverpool. Uh, yeah, uh, that's that was more of a, a kind of a southern Liverpool accent. Um, 
uh, I think. But, you know, I've had club with fans all over the world, mm-hmm. uh, including some impatient ones. I mean, you know, I, I guess you're always going to find... The, the reason radio phone-ins have been such a successful form for so long is you're always going to find people like that. Uh, I don't know if he's... I don't know if he's representative yet of a critical mass of the fans at Anfield, but who knows? Three more bad results, and we could have uh, general uproar. We'll go to the Africa Cup of Nations now. Jonathan Wilson is in Libreville, which is the capital of Gabon. Jonathan, great to talk to you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, what is Libreville like? What's Gabon like as a host nation compared to the other tournaments you've been at over there? Um, I say it's quite a difficult question to answer. I mean, from a very sort of selfish parochial point of view, I think Gabon five years ago, when it co-hosted Equatorial Guinea, was you know the, the best host city in terms of uh, best host country in terms of uh, media facilities, in terms of uh, the level of restaurant available, in terms of internal transport, all that kind of thing. I think it's even better this time, um, but I, I guess that's not the, not quite the full picture. Um, that there's a lot of unrest in the country still after the elections, uh, which were held at the end of August. Uh, Ali Bongo, the incumbent president who replaced his father, Omar Bongo, who I think was Africa's longest serving leader when he died in 2009. Um, he won the election by five and a half thousand votes from Jinping, uh, the, the challenger. Um, he went to the Supreme Court, who said, oh, actually, it was 11,000 votes he won. But now that sounds tiny, but you've got to remember it's a country of 1.5 million population, of whom I guess a lot are under 16 and so don't vote. So, you know, 11,000 is tiny, but it's not as tiny as it would be in a, an Irish or British context. Um, but, you know, you look at uh, how the election was conducted, and I think uh, a lot of international bodies have pretty serious questions about that. There were street protests afterwards in which the government acknowledged three people died. Um, I think there's pretty good evidence that uh, significantly more than that died. Um, but being a media blackout, you know, no visas being issued to foreign journalists until the tournament, which caused various problems with visas and things. Uh, if you go past the National Assembly now, you can see um, the scorch marks on the outside where protesters set fire to the building. So it's you know, there's a lot of unease about that. And there's understandable questions as to whether five years after they co-hosted the tournament, they really needed to step in to replace Libya, which is what they've effectively done, although South Africa in the dance as well, uh, and supposedly paying something in the region $770 million to put on this tournament at a time when the October budget, they slashed uh, healthcare and education spending. So the opposition were encouraging people not to go to games. Um, it's not clear whether that's worked or not, because attendances are often quite poor at Cups of Nations. I'd say certainly there's less enthusiasm for the home team than there was five years ago, but actually the attendances have held up pretty well. Really? Because some of the, when I've seen in matches, it seems as though you've got a lot of, you know, the, the kind of empty stands, I'm, I'm it's not necessarily unusual, as you said, that it has been an issue uh, at a lot of uh, past Cups of the Nations, but it didn't look as though there were big crowds at these games. There's not big crowds, but I think you've got to put it in the context of other Cups of the Nations. Um, and I think there's various reasons why people tend not to go. Um, I think there's you know, specific reasons here, for instance, in uh, Pochanty, the, the stadium is, I don't know, I'd guess 10, 10 miles out of town, 8 miles out of town. In, in OEM, it's about 15 miles out of town, so getting there is difficult. So you know, we came out of the stadium in Pochanty last night, and we managed to blag our way on this uh, presidential flight. That, I mean, president in the sense of president of CAF. Uh, so we were on the same flight as Issa Hayatu. So we were in this bus with a, with a motorcade either side of us. Uh, he was in a different bus, but we were sort of in the, um, in the procession. Um, and, you know, there was huge queues, you know, queues as far as you could see to get on the free buses back into town. And that's where the crowd, I think, was just over 10,000. 
So you can understand why people are reluctant to go. But I, I think th- there's a just across Africa, there's no great culture of going to watch football in stadiums. That you will have your hardcore fans of the, the really big clubs like you know, Kaiser Chiefs, Orlando Pirates will get massive crowds in South Africa. But if you look at attendance in the you know, South African Premier League, they'll go for 80, to, from 80,000 for a Pirates-Chiefs game down to a few hundred for the, for the smaller games. And so people who like football, often the football they watch is, is the Premier League, is La Liga, is the Champions League. So the culture is you go to the bar or you go on your mate's house and you have a few beers and you watch it there and it's nice and comfortable. You go to the stadium, it's really hot. The police are difficult. It's not a comfortable environment. I, I totally understand why... Um, that need to be at the game that we we have in Europe that doesn't really exist in, in an African context. So yeah, the, the crowds we've had, uh, yeah, I think last night's game in Porjanti, Ghana v Egypt, which obviously is one of the big games, the group stage, it was just over ten thousand. Um, the games in Franceville where Senegal have been playing, they've been getting sort of five six thousand, uh, and that's pretty healthy. And, and one of the reasons for that is that there's a huge number of expat communities in Burkina Faso. They're pretty much every taxi you get in will have a Gabon flag hanging from the uh, rearview mirror, but also the flag of Mali or Burkina Faso or Ivory Coast or DRC. Um, uh, you know, because the, the driver ha- has moved here 10, 15 years ago. It's interesting that you say you blagged your way onto a flight containing the president of the <laughs> African Federation, Issa Hayatu. I mean, no wonder you think that Gabon is a cut above other uh, host nations in terms of the facilities if you're flying around in... Uh, in private aircraft, um, I mean, what is, is that a general service that's provided for journalists? There, how many journalists are there? Are there at this thing? Like, I mean, how big of a of a kind of a media event is it? Oh, it, it's pretty big. I mean, I'd say it's it's in the thousands. Um, I mean, only going by the the number on our accreditation, um, I've seen numbers up to five thousand. So that includes photographers, cameramen. So yeah, it's it's definitely substantial. Um, I, you know, these three flights, they, they existed 12, uh, in 2012 as well uh, to get from Gabon across Equatorial Guinea, who they're co-hosting with, where you know, they were really necessary because you were going across to an island. Um, they're not 100% reliable. It's never entirely clear how you book on these flights. I, I, I'm, what happened last night, I still don't quite understand the, the process. Go on, what was the process? Well, you know, we, we'd... we'd um, We'd been in Porsche on TV. There's, there's four of us sort of travelling around together because obviously that makes logistics a lot easier. We got a bungalow in, in Liberville, quite near the stadium, so we walked to the stadium, so we avoid the, the long, long drive out of town. Um, and our, we'd been in Porsche on TV for five days, uh, and our plan had been there's a catamaran goes across uh, Porsche on TV on a, a peninsula, so you can do it by road, but it takes forever. Uh, we planned to get this this catamaran, which takes three hours, but it turns out it doesn't run on a uh, what day is it today? Thursday. It doesn't run on a Thursday, which we found out yesterday when trying to book tickets. So we were sort of well, we could try and get a flight tomorrow, but that would be two hundred dollars. Uh, and also, we've got a meeting tonight with various political people, which we don't want to miss. Um, and so we sort of asked around about these Cocan flights, Cocan being the local organising committee, and we had got one back from OEM, which seemed totally legitimate. We'd uh, paid a small fee, I'm not sure exactly where that went, to get on the same plane as the Tunisian Zimbabwe teams to get back from Franceville, which was all very confusing. But then last night we, we just saw, sort of saw the bus. Um, we, we, we twigged which journalists had come on the flight out, free flight out, sort of followed them, got on the bus to, to go back to the airport. So you know, there's 
flashing lights and people being driven off the road to get us through. And it was all sort of, I mean, slightly exciting, incredibly comfortable, and also, you know, inspired an enormous guilt. <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we still weren't clear if we were going to get on the plane, although we were pretty confident that, you know, it's a, it's a normal plane. So for a few CAF officials, the referees were on the plane as well, it turned out, who'd, who'd done the game yesterday. And we're talking, you know, we left what, 15 minutes after the final whistle, 20 minutes after the final whistle. Um, and then we, we got to the airport. And as we go in, uh, this, this woman in a cap suit comes out and says, are you Jonathan Wilson? And I was, yes. And she hands me a boarding pass with my name written on. I've no idea how that happened, why that happened. But she seemed to be expecting me. And then the other three lads I was with, they all got boarding passes with totally you know, other journalist names on and in one case, one of the CAF officials, um, you know, uh, his name was on the boarding pass. So if they checked them against the passports, I guess we wouldn't have got on the plane, but they didn't. So we did get on the plane. And we were back in Libreville within two hours of the game finishing, which was remarkable. I can only imagine that the three uh, guys you were travelling with were even more annoyed than a lot of our listeners are going to be to have heard that story. Um, Jonathan, but uh, you, you mentioned the the stadiums, the, the seven hundred seventy million that have been spent uh, on hosting the tournament. Um, who, what about the the actual facilities, the infrastructure? What's the provenance of that? Is is Gabon uh, like a lot of other countries in West Africa, in that uh, a lot of the building, a lot of the infrastructure is supplied by the Chinese? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's all oil money and Chinese investment. Uh, I mean. One of the sort of concerns that they have um, is that the, the, there's an enormous amount of virgin forest here. I think, I think it's 60% of all the world's, or maybe it's all of Africa's global forest, is it, uh, virgin forest is in, is, is in Gabon. Um, so we, we met the head of the national parks, uh, who's a guy from Manchester, uh, who started setting things up 10 years ago. And he's, you know, he's, he's actually done incredible things in terms of clearing uh, ivory poachers, uh, he said there were 7,000 of them who'd come over the border from Cameroon and were in the forest in the north, and they'd, they'd basically driven them out. That um, they, they had sort of um, camps where they panned for gold and then went out and shot elephants. So there's an enormous number of, of forest elephants here. Um, I, think, I think he said 80,000 elephants, which you know, in, in African terms is, is huge. Like a lot, yeah. Also, an amazing number of gorillas. I, th- I think he said that in Rwanda, which is you know, famous for its gorillas, there's 200. And here there's 20,000. So one of the huge concerns is to, to protect the forest. Now, I think, I think the figure was 88% of Gabon is forested. So it's the second most forested country in the world after Suriname. Uh, now, obviously, that means that uh, there's a huge potential for the timber. But if the, if the oil runs out, they can start selling timber, but at enormous cost to yeah, an incredibly beautiful, incredibly um, unspoiled uh, landscape. And obviously that... Uh, interface between development and what you know the needs of the population and some kind of preservation is is, is difficult but they, they do now have national parks uh, but that, that's sort of another strand to the whole election thing that um the guy we were talking to I, I think tries to sort of keep out of the politics as far as possible uh while obviously having to deal with the government yali bongo for all his many many faults he, he is very good on environmentalism the national parks are sort of his his great project and um his his rival jean ping one of his election promises was to slaughter elephants who are not in the national parks because of the damage they do to crops. So he's coming from very much a, a rural background. His 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 support base is is, is farmers, and you know, they see the elephants as a as a threat who, who damage their crops. So yeah, the solution is to build fences, but you need investment for that. 
So the, the, the National Parks guy, um, you know, he, he said it would be, the word he used was catastrophic. It would have been catastrophic to his program had John Ping won the election. So, you know, there's lots of competing interests. It's very difficult as an outsider to, to know what the best thing is. You talked about the cost of hosting this tournament to Gabon, Jonathan, and the relatively small crowds that they get at these matches. Who is actually making the money out of this tournament? Because it's still played every two years. You know, the, obviously the Euros are every four years. Cup America is now every four years, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was two every two years for ages, and then they kind of changed it to three, and now they seem to have moved it to four. And yet in Africa, um, they're hosting these tournaments in poor countries every two years, for the most part. Uh, why? Who is actually making the money out of it? Why is it viable to do this? Well, I think CAF do make money out of it um, from the TV deals. But, I mean, even they're now subject to scrutiny that the Egyptian Monopolies Commission, uh, CAF is based in Cairo, so the subject of Egyptian law, the Egyptian Monopolies Commission is investigating um, a deal that was done last year which sold the rights for various CAF tournaments for the next 12 years to a French company called Lagardère. And Issa Hayatou, is, the, the president, is, is facing... Um, Investigation. I don't think he's been indicted yet, but he's facing investigation over that. So you know, there's some controversy around that. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you know, CAF is a is a body that has many problems, many flaws. But it, just the fact that it exists is kind of amazing. When you think the the rifts in Africa, the the difficulties, political difficulties, economic difficulties, the fact that it, it gets a tournament on. You know, it's never had to delay a tournament. Never had to cancel a tournament um, since it began in 1957. Which is an astonishing achievement. It's 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 very existence. I think is something that maybe we take for granted, and and um, you know we we should be sort of more more impressed by the fact that it just goes on. Now, should it be every two years? I you know I, I totally grasp why European clubs find that very frustrating. Uh, I can even see an argument that to an extent it diminishes the the value of the tournament. But I think you've got to look at where where it's come from. That in 1957 when it was set up. There was next to no African representation at the World Cup. That um, you know, Africa and Asia played off for one spot among the 16 teams at, at, at World Cups at that time. So that was why it was set up to, as, a, you know, as a base for African football. It began with just three countries competing. Would have been four, but South Africa. I mean, the story is that, that they weren't allowed to compete because they wouldn't send a mixed race team. I, the, the facts appear to be they just couldn't afford it because it was held in, I think it's held in Ethiopia, the three First Nations were Ethiopia, Sudan, and Egypt anyway. Um, and, you know, it's, it's grown and, and it does generate revenue for CAF. And that, whether it's used as wise as it might be or not, I don't know. But, well, I do know it's not used as wise as it might be. But, you know, it, it, they do need revenue. And, and um, I, I guess they're not getting it from anywhere else. So I, I, I can see their point of view as well. Maybe, you know, if from 2026 you, we have 10 African teams at the World Cup and the division the of the, the World Cup rights, you know, maybe that diminishes the pressure to have it every two years. And that's something to look at then. But you know, I, I do grasp why they feel a need to to just you know just to celebrate what African football is every two years. Yeah, uh, the match you were at last night, of course, was um, was Egypt's victory. Egypt into the quarterfinals. Now they're going to play Morocco. I was struck by the fact that uh, Mohamed Salah scored a goal. It was a great goal, free kick, kind of out out swinging, uh, lovely strike. Um, and the Egyptian players all ran, and you know after after a little bit of celebration, they then all dropped to the ground and prayed for a little bit. I wondered, I mean, you've been to a lot of, you know, a, a lot of Cups and Nations going back nearly 20 years now, I guess. Uh, has that always been a, a feature of their celebration? Is that, is that sort of something which is a more recent development? Um, I'm not sure. But, no, I think it has always been a feature. I mean, it should also be said the Ghanaian players 
Kuwait before they went off at half time that they gathered in the centre circle. So it's 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 not it's not purely an Islamic thing. Uh, although I guess with Ghana you do have Islamic players as well, so that's obviously some kind of ecumenical um, prayer session. Uh, but I mean, back in 2006 when Egypt hosted it, uh, I, they were slaughtering goats before games. So um, you know, the, the, the religious aspect has has always been there. Uh, Ghana before training uh, two days ago had a prayer session, and you know they wouldn't start until they got Ivan Grant involved as well. So you know that's ecumenical. It is they're getting Israelis involved in these prayer sessions. Um, so yeah, the, the religious side of things has always been there. Did they actually pray after every goal? I, I'm not. I can't remember. I don't know. But I, it's, I don't think it's a, a radical shift if they hadn't done it before. All right, Jonathan uh, Wilson in Gabon. Listen, enjoy the rest of the tournament. I'm sure we'll catch up in, in the next while. Thanks, Mill. Cheers. Thanks very much. Just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player a baby. Coach. And we never said they are baby. It's just a crying big baby. And you cannot call a player a baby. Wow, I gotta say, I do love these African Cup of Nations chats with Jonathan. Uh, we talked a bit of animal conservation in there, uh, the dicey political situation in another West African state. West African. In another country. Uh, there's a few of them doing around. Yeah. And you threw a bit of religion into the mix there, Ken. You didn't quite have enough meat in the conversation so you threw a bit of religion in at the end well yeah I mean I was just struck by, by the celebration I didn't know if um, I, I, I mean I was just wondering if, if, if that had always been the way I mean my dad I asked really because my dad was working in Egypt for a bit over the last while uh, and has been there a bit and he said in his more recent visits he senses more of a um, uh, that there is a little bit more emphasis now being put on um, you know showing your devotion Um uh, it, just, just, to, just so that everybody knows that you're, you know, like everybody else, you know, uh, the devout. Uh, and obviously, the players uh, of the national team are among the most public figures in the entire country, at least for the duration of this tournament. Um, so I was wondering if their, if their kind of uh, religious celebrations were maybe. Well, basically, just if, if that mm. had changed since since recent years, but I guess uh, maybe maybe not that much. Maybe maybe that pressure has always been there for figures that public in Egypt. All right, that's it for today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. We're going to be talking Roger Federer in the and the Williams sisters, indeed. Uh, pretty good, pretty good twenty four hours for the old guys at the Australian Open tennis. Those three are all into the Aussie Open final. Uh, we've got plenty more besides in that podcast. Uh, in the meantime, oh yeah, we were. We, included among that plenty of other stuff is uh, a chat with Andy Lee about Carl Frampton's rematch 
with Leo Santa Cruz in Las Vegas this weekend. Huge fight coming up. And it's on Sky Sports 1, by the way, that fight, as opposed to Sky Box Office or anything like that. So if you already have Sky, you can watch it. Albeit it will be a middle-of-the-night job, I would say, by the time Frampton gets into the ring. Anyway, more of that in the other podcast. Thanks, Ken. Thank you very much, Owen. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 